Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Agora Podcast Network's The Exchange. I'm your host, Tom Daly. As an avid podcast listener, I'm always looking out for new shows to add to my subscription list. While the majority of what I listen to is history-oriented, I'm always interested in finding quality podcasts that help me broaden my view of the other disciplines that comprise the liberal arts. And literature is one of my big blind spots. This is why, for me, one of the most exciting new podcasts that I came across in 2017 was The Cannonball. The Cannonball is that rare podcast that can both speak intelligibly about a technical subject and do so in a lighthearted and unaffected way. The Cannonball is an exploration of the complex motivations behind the incisive social commentary within and the humor inherent in the great works of the Western canon that, their original meaning being obscured by time, are too often taught as grim, moralizing, two-dimensional tales, if they are discussed at all. Hosts Claude Myron Guzer and Daniel Doughty combine their unique individual perspectives and talents to draw out the rich contextuality of the works that have built the Western literary tradition. So without further delay, dear listeners, I present to you my interview with The Cannonball. Welcome, Claude Myron Guzer, and welcome back to our returning champion, Daniel Doughty. Welcome to The Exchange! Hey, uh, thanks, thanks, for, thanks for having us on. Yeah, very, thank you very much. We really appreciate it. Oh, it's good. glad to have you. I'm real excited to have you guys join me because I'm excited to talk about the cannonball. Now, uh, I, I did want to start with the exchange neophyte here, uh, Claude Myron Guzer. Uh, now, do you mind if I call you Goose? Uh, sure. I'd, I'll go by. I'll go by any of that. My day job, right. I'm usually answering to "Hey, asshole." So um, that's uh... well, Goose. Um, I'd like to start with you because people are are just being introduced to you, really, um, you know, through these early these early episodes of the Cannonball, and um, I wanted uh, to discuss your background a little bit. Now, I have here in my notes that you are an elitist ivory tower intellectual. <laughs> How is that going? Uh, about as as well monetarily as you would uh, as you would think. Uh, no, <laughs> that's. 
That's an interesting way to put it. Uh, I, you know, when when Daniel and I started this, I sort of pitched it to him as, you know, we're we're a couple of uh, well-educated autodidacts, and, and that's honestly how I've sort of felt in academia for for a while. Um, there's a lot, and and that gets at sort of what the cannonball is. Uh, I've got a bachelor's, a master's, and a PhD in English, and I can do the the academic stuff. Uh, and I do it for a living, but there's also this sort of like affective thing that's left out. Uh, and, and Daniel and I figured, Hey, this might be a, a cool way to get at that. So does that sort of help answer your question? It's on the one hand, <laughs> a profession, a job that leaves me exhausted, uh, usually by about six o'clock in the, in the evening. And yet I persist. There you go. I, I am always interested, and you kind of touched upon it a little bit, is what makes somebody take the leap from being interested in, a, in an area into actually podcasting about it. So what caused that jump for you? And as an educator, do you find there's similarities between teaching and podcasting, or are they just two completely different things in your experience? It's... <laughs> I don't know if this speaks well of the podcast or poorly of my teaching, but it's kind of the same thing. Um, <laughs> I, I was I, I was talking to you know we just did a, a an interview with my friend Matt Shiflett, who is much more of a full on academic than I am, and uh, he well he's a scholar. Let's put it that way. I'm just some punk. But he, we, we were talking uh, after the show, and he was saying what a relief it was to talk about Moliere. And I said, why? And he said, because I don't get to talk about this when I'm teaching. We've got mm-hmm. our, our concrete areas that we are experts in. We go in. We know that backwards and forwards. I've been teaching the wasteland every semester for the past five years, six years. My field is... One of my fields is American modernism. I know it backwards and forwards, and that fact makes me sick sometimes. Um, <laughs> yeah, but it's Matt was saying that this was a chance to have an interesting conversation and to do the same kind of prep work that we kind of sort of do when you know we're getting ready to stand up and lecture, but doing it about something we don't get to talk about professionally. And there's there's a lot of fun in that. Um, you know, Daniel and I spent about a year reading Dante. Uh, I, I didn't really realize that until we got to Paradiso. Yeah. It was sort of like, my God, 2016 or, or 2017 was pretty much just Dante 24-7. Yeah. Um, and the prep work that I think we did for that was like getting a lecture together. Oh, yeah, uh, definitely. Yeah. You know, I, I don't know if it was that way for you, Daniel, but for me, it was. I, I have a feeling it was because oh, yeah. you I, kept the conversation going. I'll, let me tell you something, Claude. I have taken preparing for having a conversation with you more seriously than I ever <laughs> took any English class in college. I, I'm 100 percent serious. Um, but, but I think what, you, what you're getting at, though, and in, in the way that uh, the way it feels to me a lot of the time is that we the, the, doing the show is a chance to talk about this kind of stuff as a fan. And so yeah. like what, what you get to do, like what you're getting to do is talk about like, this is something of course that you're interested in. You've devoted your professional life to, to sort of diving into, you know, diving into it. 
there has to be a kind of you know no matter how sick of it you get there has to be a real abiding love for the kind of material and it's a real you know it can be a real gift to be able to kick back and talk about it in a manner that's that's more about being enthusiastic and picking your own brain and someone else's about it rather than yeah presenting some kind of uh systematized uh analysis of anything although you know hmm. we, we analyze it's just not very systematic <laughs> well yeah i yeah i was gonna say like it, from our conversation last time uh on the paradiso uh which gives you an idea that we haven't prepared for moliere yet but um <laughs> for our conversation on the paradiso it, it was through that conversation that i really became convinced that hollander's thesis is right i mean he was positing this idea that the paradiso is a kind of epic of crusading and once we got into that and sort of started testing it and, you know, working with your conversation and your knowledge, I, I, I'm really convinced that he's right. Uh, so it's sort of like we get to test a couple of things. Um, and, and the other thing is we get to come at it in ways that I think are a little bit different than the, the professionalized way. You know, we used to always joke that, um, You've got the four horsemen of approaches to a literary text, uh, sex, gen uh, sexuality, gender, uh, race, and class. And, okay, it's not that my own reading isn't inflected by that, mm. and it's not that I don't see those as important topics to discuss when doing these things. It's not that I don't see those as important and interesting lenses. It's just not the only one, but it is sometimes the only professional one mm -hmm. so there's this like i said this affective thing that i think we can get out with the podcast which allows us to be you know to do our legwork to do our background work to do the studying and to get at it and and think about what moves us does that make hmm. sense yeah now if i could i wanted to i wanted to swing to daniel for a second yeah specifically in this next question um or as i like to refer to him the michael jordan of podcasting <laughs> that's that yeah yeah in, in that my uh uh damn it i don't know enough about michael jordan to make any good jokes all <laughs> right sorry let, continue let me put this so you won say you won three finals mvp awards in a row and seven <laughs> straight scoring titles in a row and walked away at the top of your podcasting oh, game right 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 and I gotcha. you know now you've been out there. You've you've recharged. You've refocused. You made Space Jam. You <laughs> right. embarrassed yourself playing semi-pro baseball. Semi-pro baseball. Now you're in back my, with... in my hometown. In fact, for the in Birmingham Barons. Yeah. But now you here. You are. You're back with the Cannonball. Yeah. Or rather, so I guess I should what say. Was it a... um, I'm sorry. That's not Michael Jordan's hometown. He played baseball in my hometown. It was a really it was so exciting when it happened. Anyway, I'm sorry. Really, I didn't even know that. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, but what was the question? You have so much in common. There's just so much in common with him. Yeah. Um, but so the question was, so what about this project brought you back? Yeah. Don Quixote. <laughs> well, it, it, it was Don Quixote, in fact. Um, yeah. Well, the, uh, you know, I, I, I sort of stepped away from uh, Lesser Bonaparte's, which has been really, which has been going strong. Uh, ever since uh, uh, Glenn mm -hmm. is absolutely a machine and, uh, and, and everybody else who's come on the show uh, like uh, uh, with Kristaps uh, and David and all the other uh, and, Bri and most recently Bri um, uh, I mean what, what they're doing is you know it's, it's amazing content that they keep going and um, which I'm really happy for because I could not keep up 
<laughs> was really was really kind of what it was all about. But um, but kind of what brought me back into the game, I guess, was um, in a sort of an earlier iteration of the Cannonball Project, uh, Claude er, had me tapped to read Don Quixote. So I was going to be the person to come on and talk about with him about Don Quixote. And, uh, and it was really, it was, it was a pretty wonderful experience because I had never, uh, I had never read Don Quixote. I only knew the, the barest of outlines, what you might be able to pick up from, you know, glancing at a playbill cover for, you know, the man from La Mancha. And, um, but I was really just blown away with not only, not only how much sort of grist there was for conversations I could be having in, in, uh, you know, in reading the text, uh, but also, um, just how much. I guess just how much my own sort of peripatetic sponge absorption of a lot of, you know, my, my shallow, my broad and shallow knowledge of a lot of stuff would, would kind of help with like when you're looking at say like, you know, world literature or something like I, yeah, I had a little, I dabbled in learning a little bit about the society this came out of. And so that was like, Oh, you know, I, I might actually have something to contribute talking about this. Um, so it was a really cool experience. We, we recorded, um, we ended up recording a couple hours worth of material on just the first half of Don Quixote. And we realized sort of in the middle of recording it, they're like, Hey, wait a minute, we can't get to the second half. Um, and, uh, but like I said, that was kind of an earlier iteration of the project. Uh, and you know, we've sort of restarted it since then. I guess part of what, what sort of brought it back in for me is uh, the, how am I going to put this without sounding all that lazy? Our release schedule is such that, <laughs> that, um, uh, I can I can actually sort of I can I can dedicate a lot more sort of thought to what uh to what I can say and what I can contribute, um, and uh, and so, but but also knowing that like I'm really stepping all over myself trying to explain what's going on here. It's also helping me cover a real blind spot, I guess I could say, that I mm. really have not engaged with very many of the the kinds of texts that end up in these lists of the great works of the Western tradition, et cetera, or the canon or, you know, what have you, um, especially not beyond say assigned reading. And mm -hmm. I, I very much, I very much believe that there is a deeply ingrained part of me that really bucks against being assigned to read anything <laughs> because oh, absolutely, just, just because like, I, I have all this other reading I want to be doing, you know? So the idea that I would be able to, well, I mean, kind of like Claude said, like I, you know, we do the reading and we do this prep in much the same way as I would for, you know, <clears throat> doing some kind of like serious classwork or something about it. But the payoff is I get to have this really fun, cool conversation with a pal of mine about, you know, and, and we get to not only talk about like the sort of the, the headier stuff about it. We also get to find new and interesting ways to say this was cool and I liked it. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. Awesome, guys. So. For many people, um, I think we need to explain uh, who is Harold Bloom and what is the Western canon. Okay, so this is um, Harold Bloom is sort of persona persona non grata within academia. Um, he he burned all his bridges around uh, ninety four ninety six whenever the 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 Western canon came out. Bloom is kind of this weirdo scholar he's a scholar of no school though he's associated with deconstruction uh he was sort of around at the same time in fact uh paul de was one of his sort of early mentors 
or, or mentors when, once he got to Yale. Um, he draws heavily from Freud, and I, the, his major book back in the 70s was The Anxiety of Influence. Um, it's, it, it's a bizarre book in many ways. It, it tries to map a kind of intertextuality. Uh, how do you move from one text to another text? How do you define influence between texts? And it's an interesting kind of idea, but it's it, it draws very heavily from Freud and Kabbalah in a lot of ways. <laughs> Just let that sink in. For Sounds like the seventies to me. Yeah, yeah, but but I think he was sincere about it, and um, it it has the same kind of problem that I think Freudian psychoanalysis does. It's a great mythology. Yeah, but when when you put it to the test, there's a lot that's really sort of lacking. But anyway, uh, that was his his sort of main contribution in the '70s. Earlier than that, he was really kind of crucial in bringing the Romantics back into being considered from an academic viewpoint. Um, he wasn't the only one. In fact, I I think his his mentor. I believe at Cornell, Cornell uh, M. H. Abrams was really, you know, the guy pushing it, and Bloom sort of got caught up in that. But um, he he was kind of a weirdo because when theory was sort of rising, he sort of, um, I guess, took himself out of it a little bit. When the English department sort of started bleeding into the sociology department or the sociology department sort of started bleeding into the English department. That's when he, he got off the boat and the Western canon is this book he wrote in the nineties where he basically says, screw all the isms. Um, you know, there are this selection of books that have influenced each other, that have been this set of major influencers. They're unavoidable in a certain kind of sense. And to try to avoid them is to miss the richness of literature. Now, okay, part of what he was doing was burning his bridges. Um, he pissed off a lot of people. And the book is not, like, we were talking about this in the first episode that we did. I can't recommend that book. <laughs> Um, yeah. it's it's yeah. it's an angry and and very ugly book it's and it's a, it's really you can you can almost hear the axe being ground as you read it yeah, yeah. and and mm. it's the 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 most generous way i can think to think about it is that it's a cry of pain um blooms he reads aesthetically as an existential thing and he's very upfront about that um, he he sort of follows Walter Pater in that that his aestheticism is innately tied to a kind of existential despair, and seeing as mortality is a thing, we are reading against time in in Bloom's way of thinking about it. So if we only have so much time to get so much in, then why waste your time on things that don't hold up? That's sort of what what his idea is. Um, that I think is the the part of his project that is overlooked. I think that a lot of people mistake him for Alan Bloom, uh, you know, who wrote the the closing of the American Mind, mm -hmm. and oh, yes, he's yeah. he, he's not Bloom is not an arch conservative. In fact, his politics swing much the other way. But he is antagonistic towards 
any critical lens that will use literature for anything, uh, whatever literature is, I'm sorry, it's my own tick, I have to get that in, <clears throat> but would use it for anything other than um, aesthetic enjoyment, which bleeds away from the the existential dread, right? Um, on, on the one hand, I, I kind of admire that. I, 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 <laughs> against mortality, he's putting art. Um, <laughs> on the other hand, I think there's also much to be gained by viewing the political um, ideologies that inform a work by thinking about a work in terms of what it says about conceptions of being that we have now that were not maybe privileged or honored in the past so on and so forth does that make sense yeah i think um yeah i think another i guess aspect to think of and and sort of where we're coming from in the project of examining you know balloons bloom was, was of course just like a jumping off point and we're using his compiled list and whatnot but i i think what uh i think what both claude and i would get at is that it's not an either or proposition you can you can you can still yeah. enjoy you can still enjoy these works as a as a, as an, an aesthetic experience while also to me it's very fascinating to examine the you know to to see to use these works of literature to examine well what were the cultural assumptions that went into them you know what were the mm -hmm. the sort of baked in viewpoints that we would refer to you know that's a, that you can refer to a little uh inflammatorily as ideology but i mean you just mm -hmm. think of it just think of it as what are the baked in viewpoints in these various works and how does that inflect our enjoyment of them but also you know there's real beauty to be had in them uh but yeah it's, it's so it's sort of we're fighting against the either or uh that that <laughs> bloom and his detractors have set up we are we are the hegelian synthesis <laughs> there you go yeah and I, I, you got I, a new uh new tagline for your show I, I... <laughs> Yeah, let's put that on a T-shirt. We are the Hegelian synthesis. Yeah, that's, that's not insufferably uh, but, dorky, but anyway. <laughs> but but I I think Daniel's right, and that's the other thing that I want to reiterate. Uh, <laughs> the list is kind of our arbitrary construct to give, um, I guess, structure to a podcast. Uh, <laughs> it's it's bizarre. He wrote this list. What he did was um, he's got chapters. Uh, sort of describing and analyzing, I mean, loosely analyzing uh, several world literary figures, uh, starting from Chaucer going all the way to Beckett. And then at the end, he's got this gigantic list of, I think it's like 15,000 works that he says, well, these are the canonical ones. <laughs> Knock yourself out. Uh, the He said his editor told him to put the list together and he thought it up in an afternoon. Um, <laughs> he didn't want to put it there and, and he's sort of been chagrined by it ever since. Um, he, he has added every once in a while, he'll come out with a pronouncement with a, a novelist or, or poet or playwright who he thinks is canonical or something like that. But he, the list is kind of arbitrary. And I think that's the point is that we're arbitrarily using it to, you know, structure this two-man book club we've got going. yeah <laughs> i mean it's, it's interesting that you're saying that the list itself almost doesn't matter to to bloom am i hearing that right it's more about the reading 
Well, kind of. I mean, he does have this way of thinking about... Okay, if you look at the list, you can see Bloom's concerns, if that makes any sense at all. Um, there are things on there that you question. You're like, why the hell is he spending so much time with this? And then once you take in certain theoretical ideas he has or, or certain... Um, biographical things he's talked about in in some some settings you're like oh well this makes total sense does that make sense so it's Mm -hmm. it's a list that on the one hand i find that it's kind of boring because it's got everyone (laughs) you would think would be there on the other hand it's idiosyncratic in that it's also got these things that speak really only to his obsessions. Yeah. So it's, you know, um, that, that's sort of how it goes. And one of his obsessions is this idea of influence, or at least it has been for a while. <clears throat> but this idea that certain writers are unconsciously revising certain other writers. Mm-hmm. And so sometimes there are things on there that I think he just put on there because, well, okay, this is some minor point in how Shelley rethought the idea of language. And so, of course, this obscure writer from the 17th century that no one has read or translated in 200 years is going to be there. Does that make sense? <laughs> yeah. It, yeah. And Daniel, feel free to jump in as well. Mm-hmm. Is the qualifier of Western important? For Bloom, is there a yeah. reason that that's his focus? Yes and no. I, I'm sorry. <laughs> I know you asked Daniel, but I can jump in here. No, no, no. It's fine. Yes it's, no. Yeah, I think Thomas was inviting me if, if I uh, if I feel like I have anything to add. Um, which, hey, I might. Okay. You never know. He, <laughs> he said that um, that he's delineated it not necessarily because Western culture is the end-all, be-all of culture, but because it's what he knows. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. Well, that's easy enough. At, at a certain point uh, in one of his later books from like 2002, I think it was, he has a whole chapter on uh, the tale of Genji. So it's, it, it's not necessarily strictly, oh, Western culture is the end-all, be-all culture. It's the only culture that matters. He's He's been up front and saying, I arbitrarily picked this because it's what I understand the best. And I've tried to understand other works. Maybe I just don't get it, but this is what I know. This is what, what I can grasp. Yeah, and I, there, I would, Yeah, please. Oh, yeah. And I, I would think it's, you know, part, part of his project was, uh, or I guess part of his impetus was to, you know, look, we need, you know, to say, we need to recognize that these are the works that the society that you and I live in, myself and this audience I'm writing to, these are the, the works that our culture is kind of has been steeping in for centuries. These are the works that are the, the background radiation behind the, the cultural and you know, literary universe that you and I swim in. And, you know, and I think about that because I think, you know, I, I, I'm someone who I am very interested in the, in the, the, you know, the vast, vast literary corpus uh, that's out there in these other traditions and, uh, and, and, uh, and yeah, traditions and societies and I also think to myself, well, there's no possible way I can even begin to appreciate it. Like I, I you know, I, I've become rather interested uh, lately in the, when I realized just what an enormous literary output the Buddhist religious tradition has. 
this is one of the most literary cultural phenomena that has ever existed it's truly astonishing the, like the sheer volume of uh material that has been produced from within this particular you know religio cultural sort of complex of ideas and conceptions and i thought to myself wow i should really read up you know on some of the classics of buddhist literature and then again i thought to myself there's no possible way i'll ever gain an inkling of an understanding of what this actually means <laughs> because it's not it's it's not anything that i'm looking back into from the standpoint of someone who grew up in you know reading thai literature or or reading you know uh uh zen buddhist literature or or you know tibetan buddhist literature i didn't come up in the culture that had been steeped in those works the way that the culture mm -hmm. i did come up in was steeped in works of you know william shakespeare or jeffrey chaucer or the various of the other sort of heavy hitters present in the western canon so yeah i think it's more i would say it's more a matter of bloom recognizing his limitations and and honestly respecting the existence of these other just incredibly sophisticated bodies of literature that are out there uh it's the kind of thing that i take a look at and i you know i i mean i despair of ever understanding i despair of ever understanding american culture fully <laughs> and much yes. much less I, the I, entirety of western civilization and i definitely despair of ever understanding indian literary culture you know? <laughs> yeah I, well, I think despairing about understanding American culture is part of American culture. So. <laughs> <laughs> oh, cool. Then I'm on, I'm on track. All right. Good to know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're a typical American looking for the American real. Yeah. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad. And I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. It dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Well, I just don't understand. If Bloom thought he knew so much about you know Western literature, how come uh, Tolkien's not on the list? But uh, I guess that's a digression. <laughs> he, um, I think he that's likes... another one of those axes to grind. <laughs> He likes <laughs> yes. My big complaint. You is want the where's answer? J.R.R. Tolkien? Here's oh, an answer. Yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. Absolutely. Um, 
he, I was okay. just bullshitting, but fine, no, yeah. no, no, no. He's uh, okay. He's <laughs> this is fascinating. All right, so he he kind of burned his bridges, and he's not taken seriously in academia. But he's got this. I think for like the past thirty or forty years, he's had this um, thing going with uh, some academic publishing house that puts out these these blooms guides so what he does is writes a preface to an author uh and then collects what he thinks are the most insightful critical essays about him and they're they're okay they're they're kind of like if you're an undergrad and a smart undergrad and want to get your feet wet with the criticism they're not the worst place to start as a as a public librarian who has helped many high school kids with their literature <laughs> papers i am deeply familiar with this series of works okay, they are extremely yeah. helpful yeah really yeah good. from from the start they, they're kind of like a good smart early student starter guide but um they don't Necess- here's my caveat about them they don't necessarily um give the most useful insights from the field let's put it that way they don't necessarily represent the field and they don't always give the the most useful insights from the field so mm-hmm. if you're an upper level undergrad and you're thinking aha maybe this will be my way in uh buddy look look somewhere else <laughs> but um <laughs> but but to get back to it yeah so a lot of them he just gets paid to write them and he just oh. pushes them out. I mean, well, all of them he gets paid to write them, but he just kind of like pushes them out and pushes them out and pushes them out. They're kind of an industry unto themselves. And he does a lot of stuff for the money uh, because I think in the the 80s and 90s, he, he sort of, you know, that's that's just personal shit that I've heard. I don't know if it's true. But um, anyway, he, he just pushes them out and he did, he's done some on writers that he doesn't necessarily admire all that much. Uh, like he did, one on Tom Wolfe, and he said, look, I don't think Wolfe is the, the best one out there, but it's interesting to have a satirist like this to think about what he says about American culture. Um, he, he's done them on Toni Morrison, and he really dislikes Toni Morrison. But he did one on Tolkien, and, and I saw it in the library once, and I was like, all right, I, I got to see what he has to say. And I was just flipping through it, and apparently, if I remember correctly, um, he liked The Hobbit. Like, he really liked The Hobbit and thought of it as – this isn't damning it with faint praise, but really thought of it as fantastic children's literature, like mm-hmm. great books for kids. And he said in in his estimation, the Lord of the Rings gets bogged down in the World War allegory. And for him, it got too dark in certain ways, like the, the mm-hmm. whole descent to hell, the whole you know descent into the mountain and everything. And he said, uh, the older he gets, the more he just sides with Bilbo. Why are you dragging me out of here? I could be at home having lunch <laughs> or breakfast. And he seems to admire Bilbo's um, just, what? I, I, why did you take me from my creature comforts? This, this is the best that I, you know, come on. Like uh, when you're young, you think a grand adventure is what's going to make your life meaningful. And, you know, by the time you're in your mid thirties, man, a, a really good plate of bacon and eggs and corned beef hash would just be <laughs> on a nice sort of drizzly Sunday morning where you sleep in a little bit and, you know, the coffee is just perfect. You know, that that's, that's life. That's just, you know, that, that brings, that but, brings yeah. to mind that uh, I, uh, back in my my swinging bachelor days, uh, my my close friend and, and and roommate at the time, we we were we were in in fast you know in hard agreement that we we would sit through a feature length 
uh, like Lord of the Rings movie that was just Hobbiton stuff. Like it's just you just hang out in Hobbiton for a feature like thing with you know just chill like you know hang out with them Why at not? the pub and you know it would be great. Yeah, that was one of uh, Peter Jackson's um, excised seven-hour parts. Was uh, <laughs> yeah. extra pub singing in the Shire? That's right. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, thank you for filling me in on that, Claude. I, I it really is closes a hole in my heart. I, I don't wonder about anymore. But I I believe. Um, it, he hates Stephen King, but I think he's even done one of these on Stephen King. Um, so if that gives you any idea, he just pumps these things out. But every once in a while, if you if you look around, you can get his his thoughts if you're so inclined on all kinds of things that aren't necessarily you know part of his list or part of what he values. So, yeah. well, that's good. I'm. I hope to know what he doesn't value. <laughs> Uh, nah, it's okay. But let's. Well, I want to know what you guys value. So, what what work on the list that you guys have lined up were you most excited to take on? Do you think? Oh, Ooh, that's a real. That's a, a very good question. Yeah. Um. You know, I, it, it's going to be fun to 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 take another swing at Don Quixote. That, that's what I was thinking too. Was yeah. like, yeah, I want to really get into that one. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and and just because like it was, I mean, our, our earlier conversation was so uh, it just opened a lot of doors, and I'm really I'm 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 interested to see like coming back like you know over a year later like how I'm gonna uh, kind of uh, what is what it's gonna mean to me. Um, yeah, I I personally want to see what happens to Daniel when I pull Faust Part Two on him. Well, that that was gonna be the other <laughs> thing I was gonna say is. Um, <laughs> One thing I'm really, really looking forward to is uh, the the poetry that's in that's that we're going to tackle because I yeah. like it, like I, I, great literature is a pretty big blind, blind spot for me. Poetry, especially, is a giant blind spot for me, and hmm. and it's really which is a real shame because when I when I do read it and I engage in it, I really enjoy a lot of poetical work more than I ever thought I would. So uh, yeah, I think honestly, and Faust, of course, you know, given the uh, all the hermeticism and uh renaissance magic afoot in that particular work uh that, yeah I'll, that'll be a good one to chew on yeah it, it, it's all hermeticism and fart jokes in house and <laughs> and biz- like all good literature yeah, yeah and bizarre uh metaphorical orgasmic what have you um I, you know, I, I, I'm going to have to, uh, I, I got to see if she'll do it, but I have a friend who's a, a German professor and she, in Colorado, and I, I feel like we're going to have to stagger episodes on Faust Part 2 that Daniel and I are going to talk about one act, and then I'm going to have to talk to her about the act just to ask what the <laughs> hell just happened. <laughs> Faust is one of those works that I, I own like three or four translations of, and I always go back to it um, because I'm so damn confused by it. It's it's one of those things where I feel like I keep reading it and reading it, and I cannot get to the bottom of it. It's like, what exactly are you doing? What does this mean? I, I, I feel like it needs an annotation as in-depth as Dante. Yeah. Like, but but it's never going to get that because it doesn't have that kind of reputation. It's taken as this other thing. Yeah. And it's just, mm. it's so bizarre. It's so bizarre. But I, I want to see what happens when Daniel reads <laughs> the end of it because the the finale is just, wait, what? 
Okay, the fina- I don't want to ruin it, but the finale of yeah, no, um, no spoilers on this spoiler year old. <laughs> the, the finale of Faust Part Two um, could only happen in an episode of True Blood. Like that's the only <laughs> all right tonal wet. Like it's so tonally bizarre yeah. that I can only think of it as an episode of True Blood. All right, that and one, it's like yeah, yeah it's just. To find yeah. out what happens, you'll have to listen to the comments. Yeah, that's well, right. That's right. Or just read this 500-year-old <laughs> Well, what, what else besides the great works, guys, do you read if you have time to do that? What are your guilty pleasures? What, what would populate your nightstand? Oh, um, well, uh, you know, I, I, it's, it's funny you mentioned guilty pleasures. There was a time when I would be guilty about my pleasures, Tom, but that time is over. <laughs> Uh, I, <laughs> and to, 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 yeah, to, to my mind, you know, uh, pleasures are just pleasures. Um, but no, uh, you know what, honestly, what I, one of the things I looking over the, uh, blooms list that made me think, you know what, I'll give this guy a shot. Like, this is going to be like kind of a deep project. He's got my girl Ursula K. Le Guin on there with the left hand of darkness. Uh, mm-hmm. which is one of my absolute favorite books of all time. I, I really, most of my, my reading is genre reading in uh, science fiction and fantasy. Um, and I'm really snobby about it, which is probably the most embarrassing part of it all. <laughs> so I, would, I would be less embarrassed if I read trash genre fiction, but what I'm most embarrassed about is that I'm very snobby about my genre fiction. Um, but uh, yeah, but um, so so really... You know, any more like uh, actually, I just got uh, uh, oh gosh, oh I can't remember the title now, but I, I found a, there was there's I was I saw like a, a an article on a blog about um, uh, some kind of some kind of notably bizarre 1970s uh, uh, black urban fantasy like uh, voodoo noir detective novel that has this kind of outlandish reputation that I'd never heard of. So I was able to get it from my library. I got, got it in today. So I'm very excited to read that. Um, <laughs> but that's, that's generally the kind of what I'm working at. I, I really enjoy, um, if I, if I'm reading fiction, I really, really enjoy the fantastical. Um, and I, and I kind of, I kind of need that almost. Uh, but at also at the same time, the, uh, just having a neat spaceship just doesn't cut it for me the way it used to. So, <laughs> so, so I'm trying to thread the needle of uh, like the you know the fantastical, the uh, you know science fictional or or, or, fan, or fantastical in general. That is also that also the writer has really you can tell that the writer has put a lot of uh, sort of thought and effort into the language itself. Um, so anyway, yes, yeah, like so like Le Guin, uh, Gene Wolfe, I think is one of my favorite authors. Who also, if boy, if you ever if you ever want to sort of examine what happens when an extremely catholic person becomes very damaged by speculative fiction read some gene Wolf. It's, it's, <laughs> it's, there's some fascinating stuff going on there um but re- and really more recently i've, I've uh, sort of discovered an author discovered an author well she's she's new to me uh who actually passed away fairly recently a few years ago sherry s tepper um and she was one i would highly recommend if you're like me and you enjoy the fantastical but also uh but also desire the kind of flowing and lyrical, a very lyrical style. Uh, she's absolutely terrific. Uh, so, yeah. And Claude, I, I just really took, a, I just really took all that up. Didn't I? And, and Claude, would you like to add anything? Uh, I, okay. I'm, 
I'm teaching five courses this semester and tutoring four hours uh, on Saturday morning and and watching my kids. So if it's not a student essay, I'm not reading it. <laughs> uh, but, um, a time when, when you had time to yeah, read. <laughs> Mostly, mostly this stuff though. I take uh, diversions into uh, esoteric bullshit. Let's call it, um, and and that actually has a lot to do with the literary. I kind of got into it from Elizabethan Jacobean lit, where there are all these references to bizarre, um, you know, esoteric rituals and ways of thinking part of the historical stuff led me back to oh hey here's some weird bizarre idea about the constellations that really makes no sense considering what we think of in terms of modern physics but whoa what a bizarre metaphor so (laughs) (laughs) strange esoteric weirdness or any kind of uh, esoteric bullshit is is always kind of fascinating to me not necessarily because i believe in it because it's I guess as, uh, access to the mystical or the claims of the access to the mystical, whatever. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I can't do drugs these days, so whatever can um, <laughs> can suffice literarily. Yeah. But uh, but yeah, if that gives you any any inkling, um... I'll take from that what I can. <laughs> <laughs> So it's just in a way of wrapping up here, guys. Um, you know, do you think you'll be diverging from Bloom's list at any point, or covering <laughs> some people who are not on Bloom's list? Uh, you know, even even, g- even even if you get through it one day, we're not even going to get I mean? through Bloom's list. I I don't know if we're going to get through the main list itself. I mean, it, who knows? We might be dead by the time. <laughs> well, but see, that's the thing. You know, we could we could always do. Yeah. We could take. Um, well, you know, you've played video games, Claude. We could do side quests. Side quests, yeah. <laughs> the, this is all. This is all dependent on um, what won't give Josh, our our editor, a heart attack. I, I yeah, I, I think I, that's yeah. If if we do, it's going to have to be into some like classic esoteric bullshit from the Renaissance. Yeah, <laughs> like um, no, because uh, like the the third member that that you're not really talking to is is our editor Josh. Oh yeah. Um, our, our producer, sorry, he's a producer, not an editor. Well, I guess he does both, but yeah, he um, he is just a saint because he just out of the blue, um, I he was visiting New York and we were hanging out, and he said, "Hey, that podcast thing you were thinking about doing. If you ever need somebody to put it together, hey, I'm your guy." And I said, uh, uh, "Sure, why not?" And then uh, we talked it over. And I got back in touch with him and said, so um, were you serious about that? He's like, yeah, once a month, I think I can swing it. So he's got his own stable of podcasts that he records and produces himself and then just does ours on the fly for, for nothing. And, wow. um, I, you know, that's that's the other thing. If we could, I, I think, um, you know, side quests and things like that would be a whole lot of fun. I just don't know what stress that would add to the system <laughs> but I, I do think that's a good idea like there there's some things that are sort of off the beaten path that i want to take on from time to time to sort of poke through and see okay what makes a work canonical what makes a work non-canonical what do you think makes a worth work worth reading and what is not 
Um, I, you know, I'd really like to pick your brain sometime, Daniel, about sci-fi and fantasy because I know that's yeah. something you're really invested in, and that seems another gateway drug. Uh, a, a very smart friend of mine who's not Daniel has been trying to get me to read Gene <laughs> Wolfe for a while now, and it's it's one that I want to. Uh, it's actually one that I do want to pick up because uh, it, it seems right up my alley. But... Yeah. I'll have uh, I got I got I got a hit list for you. We'll, we'll work it out. We'll work it out. <laughs> um, if you can grade some of my papers, um... <laughs> right, we'll, do, we'll we'll do an exchange. Yeah, I, I hope those kids love a slapdash <laughs> job on grading because oh yeah, I, I go by impression mostly. <laughs> oh dear. <laughs> Well, guys, I, I really appreciate you taking the time to uh, talk with me tonight. Um, it was great having you guys in the exchange. And um, any final thoughts, any plugs or promotions you guys want to share before we say goodbye? Oh, gosh. Well, uh, thanks for thanks for having me on again, Tom. It's on, I, my, my second time here on the exchange. It's it's always It really is always a pleasure talking with you, man. It is, uh, it's, it's oh, a lot of fun doing that. the show. Um, yeah. Uh, I guess... Uh, well, I don't know. Uh, we should probably, you know what? We should do Josh a solid and and uh, plug yeah. some of some of his. You know, our our uh, producer Josh, um, and he has a regular project, uh, Predicto Cast, uh, which yeah, is a lot of he fun. He and a he and a friend of his uh, watch the first couple minutes of a movie and make predictions about what's going to happen in it, <laughs> and then they watch the rest of it and gauge how their predictions worked out. Um, and so they're always finding just weird stuff from the stretches of the internet. Uh, Josh knows obscure, bad movies like you you wouldn't believe. I mean, he's, he's amazing. And then he did this thing, and, and this was like if Monty Python had a podcast. It was sort of like what Jonathan Swift... <laughs> did for books and what monty python did for all media josh did it with this thing called butterfly kisses where it starts out that he and this friend of his it's it's i I believe it's part improv and part loosely sketched together but their plan is you know they set out they're kind of goofballs who are trying to listen to and analyze uh, songs with butterfly in the title and every episode is <laughs> no episode is longer than i believe 7 minutes and so they're just breaking down butterfly by crazy town <laughs> noted new metal rap uh hit butterfly by crazy town and it just like you have to listen to it from the very beginning there's one episode that they do that they restart 5 times in the episode and just play it off like they never edited it. It's it's like this weird thing. Like, okay, I messed up. I'm just gonna start again. Okay, three, two, one, and then they yeah. go off again. But yeah, and reintroduce it like three to five. It was either three or five times. It yeah. was, I mean, it, but it's yeah, it's it's a work of art unto itself. I mean, it's it's sort of an anti podcast. But if if anybody if that sounds like it's up anybody's it was up my alley <laughs> like I, I there were there there was a I, moment there was a moment in it where I just completely lost it I was listening to it on headphones and I just rolled over on the floor um, they do things like have a Slurpee drinking contest so thirty seconds is just the sound of Slurpees <laughs> I mean it's it's 
I, I'm not doing it justice, but please listen to that thing. It's called Butterfly Kisses, and it's just, I don't know, it blew my mind. It absolutely blew my mind. So it's the kind of thing where, you know, no matter how stupid I sound doing the cannonball, I, I'm okay with Josh editing it because of, you know, knowing what he does on his projects. <laughs> yeah, but he's he's a genius and a gentleman, and, yeah. and that guy, yeah. That so way, any... Yeah. Any goodness that can come his way is well deserved. And do you guys have a website? Uh, yeah. Vamp for a second while I try to remember what it is. <laughs> All right, I, would say, I can uh, I can cover it for you here. I can I can cover it for you. Yeah. yeah. Okay. No, but it's the Cannonball Podcast WordPress dot com. It's I I just set up a WordPress blog. And uh, it's just where I, I sort of post the episodes. And there are a couple blog entries uh, here and there. Um, just one or two things have come up during the, um, you know, during the recording. I'm like, oh, I, we, we could go back and revisit that. And so um, I'm working on something now because when I was talking to, to my friend Matt, I messed up a point that I was trying to make with Beckett. And couldn't really go back and re-edit that out. So I'm like, aha, vindication. I'll just write about it on the blog. So, um, yeah, it's we, we've got postings there. There's a contact there if you really want to get in touch with it. I don't know why you would. But Please do. We're, we're very friendly. We, we have had uh, friendly uh, emails. It's been pretty fun. Well, um, well, again, guys, thanks so much for stopping by. And uh, have a great day. All right. oh, Sounds no great. Problem. Thank you. You too, man. Thanks. All right, everybody, I hope you enjoyed that. I had a lot of fun with Daniel and Claude, and um, I hope you did too. Make sure you check out their website and give them a listen. If you missed the link that they gave in the interview, you can go to agorapodcastnetwork.com and find a link there. Okay, everybody, that is all I have. So until next time, cheers, and I hope to talk to you again soon. It's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.